0: So welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by another talented panel of guests, and today we're talking about addiction. This is a topic that is still very taboo, you know, whispered about behind closed doors. But as with most things in life, it's not black and white. Not all addicts are the same, and not everyone is addicted to alcohol or drugs. Our rapidly evolving culture has seen the rise of addiction to things like shopping, social media, and even work. But our attitudes to addiction are still very much based in the past and around a very certain type of addict, the one I'm sure we're all used to seeing meet a terrible fate in film and TV. And this kind of thing always worries me because none of our conversations around DEI can move forward if we're still holding on to stereotypes and judgments things are moving forward for women people of color the LGBTQIA+ plus community so it's time to do the same for all those struggling with or supporting loved ones who are struggling with addiction so welcome to the show ariel and angie who are going to share their thoughts on all of this with us today, and I appreciate you for both being brave and courageous and joining us today. So let's get started with some introductions. Can you each tell me who you are, what you do,
1: and how you identify? And
0: Angie, I'm gonna start with you.
1: Thank you, Sarah, and thank you so much for doing this. This subject is very important. My name is Angie Reno. I am a 30-year veteran in the supply chain uh, industry. I identify as she, her, I identify as a mom first for now, I am quickly uh, going to be the mother of young men and getting them out and into the world, and then I'm going to focus on myself, which was going to be great, but I come here today as the founder of the Siblinghood of Recovery podcast, and we can talk about that more in depth later.
0: And I cannot wait, because you are doing so much amazing work with that podcast, and I can't I can't wait to hear more about that. So thank you so much for joining us. Ariel, over to you. Why don't you tell
2: us who you are, what you do, and how you identify? Hello. I'm so honored to be here with you all and to open up this conversation together. I am Ariel Andreessen. I go with she, her pronouns. I am from Clyde, North Carolina, and that is a little outside of Asheville. I work as an intuitive herbalist and artist, and I've created a strong foundation of healing with myself through nature and sharing wisdom with women to take control back into their healing journeys through tapping into the healing benefits of nature and allowing them to feel confident in their intuitions and find strength in their traumas and compassions. And I wanna thank you for having me and I'm going to try to be as vulnerable as possible with sharing my story as going through addiction and being surrounded by loved ones that have also gone through addiction. So.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for um, deciding to be vulnerable today. I mean, this is, this is not an easy topic, no matter how you look at it. Um, But I think it's such an important one because, you know, When you think about who's in your circle and who's surrounding you on a daily basis, it's not just those in your personal life. It's also the people in your work life as well, you know, and how you draw on them and what happens at work and how that affects you and how you take that into your day and and how how you take that into how you are dealing with things that are happening in your personal life as well. So this is a, you know, really personal and emotive topic. So I want to start off by talking broadly around addiction, because I think that often there's a disconnect between what people think addiction is, and what it really is. So what actually is
1: addiction? Angie? Okay. Um, in my case, and I'll only speak to my experience, It it is an addiction to uh, substance, which cannot be controlled and starts to impact on life and it could be a result of trauma which we can talk about more later it could be a result of genetic um you know what whatever kind of chromosomes you were dealt with and in um one of the things that i've learned is it's not just the parents that are passing down the addiction it can be a broad spectrum of the history of the family history. It can also be a result of intergenerational trauma. It can be a result of not being able to manage uh, mental health. Uh, I guess I don't want to say mental health, I'll say mental health challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Anxiety, depression, that kind of stuff. So in my mind and from what I've learned over the past couple of years, It really isn't down to one specific thing or one specific challenge. It's a result of a lot of things, in in my opinion, in my humble opinion. Thank you so much for
0: sharing that. What about you, Ariel?
2: I think Angie put that so beautifully, and I agree with what she said. Um, It's just like when people find a dependency on the substance being activity to cope with stronger, deeper emotional burdens and Sometimes, you know, it feels like it's out of their hands because it can be passed on. And I'm just going to go ahead and just agree with what Angie said because she put it so beautifully.
0: She did put it so well. And I think for a lot of us that has never been through it or seen it, or maybe they are seeing it, but don't even really know it. I mean, that's also part of this as well is because if the person doesn't know that they're addicted and then your loved ones are kind of like, are you, are you not? Like, do I bring it up? Do I not bring it up? I mean, those are the types of things that I think we're also going to talk about today. Are there any misconceptions that maybe we should touch on when it comes to addiction and really just sort of put out there? Ariel?
2: I think putting blame. People like Hmm. to blame these people that are experiencing addiction. And I think we need to rewrite that story.
1: I do too. And I also, I feel that people place blame on parents as well. And that's one of the hardest things. that when a parent goes to an addiction treatment center, the treatment professionals immediately, to your point, Ariel, they take, or they're like, okay, we're not talking blame or shame. That's off the table. And it's awesome how that becomes like an an underlying uh, mantra, if you will, it becomes the foundation to healing because we are stuck blaming each other for blaming ourselves. We miss that opportunity for healing. And that's where the magic begins. That's where the magic is created.
0: And I think you could say that really with anything, right? Whether you're in addiction or you're not. I mean, healing can't start until we stop playing the blame game and we stop playing the shame game. And there's even, I think, instances where you are blaming each other and that could lead to addiction. And so what we're doing and how we're communicating is leading us down different paths. And so I think your mantra of, you know, no blame, no shame should really be used across the board. Don't you you think?
1: Yes, 100%, 100%. Ariel, I know you've had experience with the trauma more than I have personally. I mean, I'm trying to heal my own, but you're healing other people's. Where do you tie that shame into the trauma healing?
2: Um, so shame is going to come to me. The most thing I, the th- thing I see the most is self-worth. Mm. So how can we start developing worth within, how can we start to get our clients to remember their worth, know that they are That's their birthright. They have this worth within them. So creating that and starting with that and allowing for compassion and forgiveness for the emotions and things we've done and having that awareness around that, I think is once you create that strong foundation within somebody, they'll be able to confront that shame and really see through it and move through it.
0: And I think think this is a great place to maybe start with stories. Um, backgrounds and how both of you have come to where you are today in your healing journey. But one of the things that I want to say, I've I've been watching this show um, on TV and one of the things that they say on it is you are, you are not the value of the worst thing that you have ever done. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I like that.
0: Right. I love it. And I wanted to just put that out there based on what both of you have just said is the fact that a lot of times we judge people on the worst on their worst day or the worst thing that they've ever done and i think there's redemption that we forget a lot about and that it's absolutely possible and you can't value somebody on the worst thing that they've ever done. And so I really just wanted to put that out there because that sits with me. I know it's just a TV show, but it sits with me. And I think it's so fitting for this conversation today. So let's talk a little bit about your journeys and your stories. Um, Angie, do you want to start?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I say this all the time on my podcast. I do not tell my son's story um, in depth. You know, it's his story to tell, but I will to frame this was you know chaos in the family and what happened is i know that he got to a point as i did as so many other people do in their lives where you know self medication becomes an easy go-to right yeah and um so i'll just I, you know i talked to him i actually talked to him today yesterday was his 19th birthday and um I this has now become a little bit of a sense of humor kind of uh, I guess kickoff point in our family that I dropped him off on New Year's Eve to the treatment center. <laughs> and he's like because he was telling me about all the plans that he was gonna have on and I'm like, yeah, in my mind I was like, that's not gonna happen. <laughs> but um he said he said today this morning, he said, Mom, you know, I'm coming up on two years sober. And I said, I know, I know. And he said, you know, I just, I, I'm so thankful that you made that decision and that, you know, God has blessed us to, you know, for us all to be where we are today. And I said, you know, you got to give yourself credit yeah. because the, the guy that um, was coaching me for six months prior to that point, treatment for a professional, professional uh, uh, psychiatrist license and everything. He said to me, uh, his name is Mike McGuire. I actually have an interview with him on my podcast. He said, Angie, that was the shortest intervention I have ever done. (laughs) So I said, look, you know, Jake, you've got to remember, you've got to give yourself credit for that Mm -hmm. because you knew, you knew in your heart. Um, And that's, that's an important part of where we have gotten to in our relationship as looking at the beauty of things and taking Mm -hmm. away that blame and shame and that guilt and I'm in, we've come so far in two years. So that's the that's the overall story that I'll I'll put out there for now to kind of you know weave into other discussion points.
0: Can I can I ask you as a parent how long it took you to get to that point to drive him on New Year's Eve? Oh, how you knew mm-hmm. like what was it that you went through as a parent up until that point? And you know because I feel like. If we can shed the light on your story and your journey of getting it to, to that point and then getting it to this point, I think we can help a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I, um, I tell people that I, I am in, I have been in recovery for five years. And the reason I say that is I knew when he was about 13 that there was something wrong. Mm. But I also knew that that I did not, as a parent, have the capacity to help him. Mm. And I think it's really important. And I'm going to tie into another TV show. Diane Sawyer Sawyer recently interviewed Matthew Perry. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book. He released a book. And I do apologize. I don't have the name off the top of my head. But um, one of the most poignant parts of that interview really hit me hard is when um, Diane had interviewed jennifer aniston and she said we weren't equipped to handle it yeah i felt that was so great that tiny sentence because it, it sums up what a lot of parents and a lot of family members go through in this journey we're not equipped we're not equipped and its and for us to admit that and reach out for help whether it's to the pastor to the church to the community that anybody's involved in to treatment centers, to addiction professionals, to healers like yourself, Ariel. You know, you talked about nature. I want to dig into that a little bit more because that's what treatment centers do. They get these boys out into nature, right? So that was really an important part of my recognition as a parent and and being in that chaos and then then finally admitting I'm not not equipped because I loved him so much at the time. I loved my son, but I didn't love the addict.
0: Right? right
1: and there's there's stuff in there there's deep stuff in there right yeah so
0: was there a point and Ariel I'm gonna to come to you in just a minute um was there from a work standpoint like because ev- every day of those five years you would have to get up and go to work and oh yeah put in your all and all that kind of stuff did you do it quietly did anybody know did you let anybody yeah. in um was there anything from a workplace standpoint that you know people, could have helped you with
1: nothing no no it's it's still so there's so much judgment behind it there Mm. is so much but I will tell you that you know as I've gone through this and I do open up more there's so many people who I know in the industry and who are out there working that have this challenge so many people Yeah.
0: yeah and a lot of them aren't equipped Nope. But probably put so much self-blame and self-shame, and I think I think you know we're we're a culture of shame, like we feel shame oh, yeah. very deeply on a on a variety of levels, and I use this word so much now, because I don't feel that it's used enough, and normalized,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. Social shaming, social media shaming, you know, cancel culture, it's all there, you know, however you want to frame it, because even saying cancel culture brings up, it activates people using that phrase, right? And in my mind, it's just, I know what it felt like to be ashamed as a mother of not giving my son the help that he needed.
0: Yeah, because you're talking about outside shame, but I'm talking about just shame we put on ourselves, Yes. You know, for a variety of different reasons that we don't talk about that needs to be talked about a little bit more. So thank you so much for sharing that, Angie. I really appreciate that. So Ariel, what what is your journey? What's your story?
2: I want to first off say thank you, Angie, for um, bringing awareness to the parents' perspective and taking accountability of like, I don't know. I don't have the answers, so that you can have a foundation and start finding those answers for your son and being that shoulder he needs. So I just want to really, you know, honor that within you and my journey. I grew up in a family of addicts. My father was Mm -hmm. a huge, um, he was an alcoholic and that's how he lost his life. And I then through coping and dealing with traumas, I at a young age started to get into drugs. I got into pills and drinking, but I always am so aware of that I got myself out. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So I was surrounded by a lot of loss because I created this environment around me or I put myself in an environment that was you know not so good for me. And there was a lot of addicts and it woke me up though. The loss woke me up. So feeling that immense like emotion and trauma that comes from having a family member that has it from loss, I have that perspective, that inside perspective there on how much compassion we need to show to the people that have addiction. Because it can, happen to, it can happen to your dad, it can happen to your mom, your best friend, you. And for us to separate ourselves from those people is we're missing a part of ourselves within this. And um, so, yeah, I have a personal, a very personal story as well. And I know we're gonna dive into more, not just substance abuse, but behavioral. And I think we can all really relate to being addicted to things that create, you know, those happy hormones within us, like social media and things. So yeah, that's kind of a brief.
0: Yeah. And I I think you're right around behavior, right? Because the behavior can also lead to addiction, you get used to bad behavior, or people treating you badly. And that, you know, in turn, then you internalize it, and then you start treating yourself badly. And then, you know, it's like smoking. Right. Smoking is also an addiction and it's really bad for you and it's bad for your health, but people do it and it's a form of self-harm. So what I've come to realize over the last couple of months is that self-harm comes in all sorts of different forms. It can come from an addiction to smoking. It could come from an addiction to bulimia and the way that you look right? And it can come in all sorts of different forms and people do it in a variety of different ways. You know, you can, you can, you know, gnaw on the side of your, your fingers when you're, when you're anxious, like that's a form of self-harm, you know, and it comes in a variety of different forms. And I don't think people quite realize, um, what that looks like, or even if they're, even that they're doing that to themselves. So, um, Thank you so much for sharing your story as well. Um, and if you want to dive into, you know, the bad behavior and what we were going to talk about, um, let's do that now. Okay. You want to talk about your story with that?
2: Um, yeah. So as I grew up in that kind of lifestyle with um, an alcoholic, I also developed a binge eating kind of
0: okay.
2: eating disorder. And I used that to cope with my emotions. I use that to create safety within my body. I use that to release stress. So I also want to shed light on the fact that these outlets that seem so negative are actually us just trying to feel safe and trying to cope Mm. with all that we have to deal with as human beings. Mm -hmm. And I've recently, I don't want to say completely healed, but I've recovered from the binge eating, mm-hmm. and I've been able to bring awareness to those emotions and in those moments to really know where I need to redirect myself, um, but I still deal with today the need to escape through social media, mm. when I know, and it could be even more when I know I need to be, you know, doing work on my business or whatever, things that I know that bring me joy, I still can distract myself by going on social media and finding what other what is everyone else doing, or can I get the quick fix of dopamine that I need right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is something we can all relate to, right? Yeah. I think kind of. I think social media is developed around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't. Well, think and it's I should be shameful. Of.
0: No, and it's a catch twenty two, right? Because it's dopamine, but then you also start comparing yourself.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. So it's like this, it's this black hole of good and evil. <laughs> you know, you no. have to be, um, you have to be very, very aware, um, of what you're doing and, and how you're doing it. Now, my question to you is around working through everything that you've been through in your journey. What, what has your work life been? Cause I know you own your own business now and, you know, you're completely dependent on that, but I'm sure you've had jobs or tried to have jobs. What has that looked like as you've gone through this journey of addiction or even binge eating? You know, was there points where you felt um, supported and what did that look like? And was there points where people just didn't understand and actually um, contributed to your trauma? Um, Yeah, definitely. I
2: mean, when it comes to addictions, you know, like the self-worth thing, I didn't have a lot of self-worth. So Mm -hmm. I was allowing myself to be in jobs that mirrored that to me, you know, like, okay, I was in, I went from job to job to job. And I left every time due to the fact that I didn't feel supported. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have that strong foundation within myself. So I always went inward. The only solution to me was to fix how I thought about myself and to develop that self-worth within me. And once I started transforming in that way, I started to change for what I deserve. I started to step into a world where I could run my own business and help people because I know I'm worthy of it. And honestly, that support came from nature. I was able to be mirrored back my self-worth through investigating the beauties of nature. Mm. I didn't have a lot of support in my world. No one really understood what I was going to. And I honestly don't blame people. I blame myself because I mean, I was a lone wolf in it. (laughs) I was like, I got this. I'm going to deal with it. No one understands me. And if I would have stopped that cycle, I could have created probably a community and created something that was Mm. more supportive and transformational, but I got there anyways. So we're good. (laughs) But yeah, I think doing the inner work and asking for help and not feeling shameful and communicating so that you can step into a life that you deserve. Well, then you'll start to grow what you want. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so I think work, I think work just really reflected to me what I was needing work on.
0: Yeah. And congratulations to you because that's that's really hard work and a, not a lot of people get there. You know, they need people to be able to help them get to that point and get through all of that. And even people without addiction struggle with self-worth and value you know, and having that extra layer is just, you know, so you must be so proud of yourself for, for being able to do that. Angie, I want to bring you into the conversation. I know you've been like nodding and I know you've yeah. got some questions for Ariel around, you know, the nature stuff. So let's do it.
1: All right. Um, one of the things I heard in your over- overview, Ariel is the nature aspect and in- I'll, I'll- tell us a story on this one is that uh, a lot of the treatment centers bring in ice when I say boys um, the treatment center that I did put my son in and that I've worked with they just uh, treat boys right Mm -hmm. and so they'll make sure that they're out there you know canoeing out there in nature and then I know if anybody's even touched the surface of this They'll hear about treatment centers that are in Utah and Wyoming and Oregon, you know, all of these concepts take the kids out into a camping uh, scenario, as an example, no electricity, no phones, let's get back to nature. And I know a part of this is because of the the dopamine that we've already touched upon, Mm -hmm. we renewing neural pathways to different ways of thinking and different ways of the brain becoming uh, either calm or excited about going camping, you know, so I'd love to hear your opinion on that, Ariel.
2: Yeah, I mean, nature provides in every single way that you can think of. It's not just the biological, it's the spiritual. So you, if you put your hands in dirt and you play with dirt, it actually like ionizes you and it like, yes. So that's the science. Um, But when you work with nature, there's this unconditional love there. There's a, a space being held for you to start becoming aware that you can trust your own instincts, that you can trust yourself. And then it also brings in the body by like working hard, you know, like by canoeing, you know, you're using your body, you're releasing energy, that stagnancy to then open up to clarity so that you can have a better perspective on what you're feeling. Because, um, you know, trauma gets stuck in the body. And it we does. Have- and we have talk therapy which is so important but what about like somatic healing and ways to get into the body so that we can release it and be done with it (laughs) and that's obviously a journey that will never actually be done with it but we get stronger and stronger throughout
1: um so i want to piggyback on that ariel because if anybody is looking at a treatment center for their kids right a good treatment center professional will take exactly what you said, right? The somatic, the energy, the healing of the body in regards to re- the releasing of the stress. Cause often the, the addiction scenario is caused by so much stress and, and it's a stress of not wanting to take the substance, right? not being able not to take this su- substance and then being stressed out because that cycle goes on and on and on, right. And then I want to also, you know, uh, acknowledge some really good professionals who will encourage other types of therapy while they're giving the treatment center therapy, right. so so if you have a good treatment center professionals, and this is kind of like a how-to Sarah, in case somebody's out there, I'm struggling. but what if I do, okay. Um, They will say, look, we're going to give you a a safe place to live. You're going to have activities. You guys, you know, are going to go out and you're going to do some projects outside in nature, but we're also going to have meetings and a good treatment center will recommend also look into EMDR. Also look into, you know, um, another type of therapy, right? So if any treatment center says we are a one-stop shop, Red flag. Just know that that's a red flag because a good professional will say, "Hey, look, there's it's a lot of work, a lot of accommodations. You, you might have to go to twelve step meetings. You might have to go to Coda, codependence, you know, anonymous. You might have to go to Anon Alanon, uh, Naranon." So I love how you're you're taking that whole scope of when you're out in nature, you're safe, right? And that's that's what the 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 recovery is really all about is getting to that safe space so we can get to know ourselves again Mm -hmm. because in this in this craziness of addiction we have not only lost ourselves but we're having so many people tell us what we are Mm. right yeah yeah talk talk to me about that Talk, talk to me about that because- I'll talk to you about the parent you know, and then I'm switch it over to Ariel on that, uh, on the rules.
2: Breaking down your expectations of like who you are, what all the expectations and limited beliefs you put on yourself and then also releasing what everyone else has put mm. on. You. We have to decondition yes. and we have to rewrite our stories into what we believe and how are we going to know what we believe if we don't investigate and fall in love with ourselves and start healing ourselves. And it should be empowering to start to rewrite your story, and yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And then taking the everybody telling the parent what the where the child should be in development. Well, your child should be here. What's going on? Why aren't you doing that? Why Why aren't you as a parent having your child in this program or in at this grade level? Or and and I, I I've said for the last uh, year, you know, whatever happened to the bell curve? It's such a great curve. Not every kid is ninety-eight percentile in grades. You know what about looking at where they are, Mm -hmm. in whatever development that they're at? What about looking? Pressure. It closes so many
2: doors. Like when you put a part, like a somebody in a box, like you have to be here right now. It closes their unique expression here. So we're yes. shutting them out to be fit this form. When now we're missing out on the beauty of what that person has to offer, and mm-hmm. they're not going to find it if they are keep up, if people keep putting them in boxes. So allowing yes. them to flow in any like space that they need is so beautiful, and we have to remember that, and we have to remind people that like it's like again with the shame. Don't put shame on your child for not mm-hmm. being where everyone. "Quote unquote," everyone is because we we might not even that might be what they're projecting to the world where they're mm-hmm. at, but they're probably not. We're on honestly probably more on the same levels than we think.
1: So we really was, go ahead, Angie. Well, it, I was just gonna say we've got to give each other space, yes. you know, and and I think we've lost that a little bit with the social media condensing time and reactions. Mm. And if if you're in recovery and if you're surrounded by a good recovery community, you're gonna you're gonna find that they actually they breathe in and breathe out before they react to a provocative question mm. or a provocative concept, a good recovery, you know um, resource for me. I have two moms that I call. And I called them over Thanksgiving because I'm like, oh, trigger. <laughs> Holidays are crazy, right? And I waited to react until I could talk to them, and they gently walked me through. And and they call me sometimes too. And what we do is we give each other space. Mm-hmm. What's really, how are you feeling? Well, and Ariel, I know you. I know you know this about feelings. It's like, and when you start. Into the recovery journey, feelings are the scariest thing in the entire world.
0: (laughs) I think they're scary for everybody.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all stemming from a dysregulated nervous system.
0: So Mm,
2: we can't handle emotions, and our mind starts spiraling, our body starts shaking, and we're like, you know, like our body feels like we're in danger when really we're in danger. So getting back to the body and how do we regulate this person's nervous system so they, when emotions arise, they can handle them? Mm-hmm.
0: Such good points. So I want to ask you from um, like a work standpoint, like from a from a, like if you work for a company, right? What does recovery look like? And how can companies who maybe have an employee that is in recovery, or how can I, as a colleague, support somebody in recovery that's not part of the recovery community, that doesn't know everything that you know because you're immersed in it and things like that. What can somebody, and it's not even really even in a professional setting. It could be just a friend that's, you know, from afar that's just looking in and, you know, wants to be that ally, wants to be supportive. Maybe it's an HR professional that's never dealt with it before. What does recovery look like and what does that support look like from people who are not within that recovery community um, to somebody who is going through recovery and recovery could be for the addict or it could be for the family and the people that surround them.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I think Andrew did uh, said, like, like she said, holding space for somebody and allowing for communication, their education. I think education is super important Um, even, and accountability, knowing like, I don't know what to do, let's, but I will be there for you and I will help guide you or let's dive into the education together. Like Mm -hmm. that support is really all anybody really wants to feel heard and to be seen.
0: Would somebody in recovery, if I asked you, what is it that you need from me or what can we do for you? Would they know how to answer that question? Uh
1: I'll help out on that. I think a good first step is to call the the toll-free number and the benefits. You know, for your insurance, if you if if you're working for okay. an employer that provides inter- yeah. So yeah, getting on that getting on that line and having an in-depth discussion being prepared to to talk for about you know 15 20 minutes about what are the options and really understanding the benefits available right okay. getting those organized a lot of times if somebody's dealing with this there's there's a dysregulation right as ariel said so starting to get your thoughts organized on paper really helps right These are the benefits. These are the programs that are covered. This is where I can go for more information. A second option is to go to the 12-step community, whatever it may be, and there's so much out there, and then go to a few 12-step meetings, especially in your area. What's interesting... Go ahead. Oh, sorry,
0: question. Is that the person that's in recovery or actually colleagues that are around them or the HR professional?
1: It's it's the person that's in recovery. Okay, And it's it's hard to go to HR off the bat.
0: I know. I well, that's why that. I was asking. Yep. Yeah. Like, how do we break the stigma? Because there's so much judgment, like you guys have said. And, you know, I, I feel like somebody who's in recovery has that community outside of work but then you go to work and then what?
1: I would challenge some companies to start using the term sober curious. Okay. Okay. This is a fantastic term. And, you know, we, you and I both know, Sarah, that a lot of the industry events have alcohol. They do. I know. Most of them, right. And we were at an industry event, you and I, three years ago where (laughs) we were talking about, how do we get industry events that don't have alcohol. And then somebody else came up like Moose five cruise. minutes later. Like, yeah, let's do this cruise. And we're like, oh no, this isn't right. The cool thing about the younger generation. So the older generation, y'all have to just get up, get on the boat or get off quote unquote, but they're ready for non-alcoholic related events. Hmm. They're ready for it. For as an herbalist, mm-hmm.
2: you know, there's adaptogen Uh, cocktails. And what adaptogen herbs do is they help you feel good and uplifted. And like, they give you that confidence, you know, like I like you feel good in your body, because it balances stress within your body. So Mm -hmm. it's a healthier option to still get an uplifted mood without having to drink, you know, alcohol and depress ourselves as it's a depressant. So yeah, like just educating yourself more about how do we get people to feel good and open up in ways that actually benefit them.
0: Yeah. Well, and I also like listening to both of you talk about the nature and how nature is such a big proponent to just us human beings in general and healing in general, whether you're part of addiction or not, you know, it kind of takes me back to school and how <laughs> on research and or recess and lunch, you were locked out of the school and told to go outside yeah and I almost feel like you know at work we get a 15 minute break or we get a 30 minute lunch break or an hour break and I almost feel like we need to do the same thing like (laughs) lock the damn door (laughs) and go outside and regulate yourself like that was the one thing that was kind of going through my mind because I was like yes how do we get people back in
1: nature (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, the PTA has their headquarters right near my house in um, Ponte, Vedra, Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. And their new HQ is awesome. And they have all these sections where you can see outside. You can have meetings outside. And everywhere that you stand in that building, you, you can see forest or green, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think more companies should develop that. I, Ariel, to your point, I think uh, Katy Perry has a line of non-alcoholic drinks released out now. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what her line is called, but if you, you know how the social media algorithms work, you know, type in Sober Curious and the algorithms will start presenting you options to you know, be sober curious. And the cool thing about sober curious is for, for some of those people who just want to, you know, they want to dial back with it and they still want to be engaged in the meet and greet, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And how do we, how do we support people in their recovery, especially, you know, with alcoholism? Um, When we talk about conferences, we talk about industry events, especially for males. I mean, for men, like the culture of getting together and having a beer and drinking alcohol, like there's a lot of pressure with that. And so when we think about industry conferences, when we think about, you know, work get togethers, holiday parties, all of that kind of stuff. The thing that is going through my mind when I'm talking about that is if I am an alcoholic, that is the absolute like bane of my existence. Like I do not want to go, but we also talk about being inclusive, right? Diversity and inclusive. Yeah, And we have to be cognizant and mindful of that inclusion piece. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode on addiction, because yes, it's a huge topic. It's wide variety. We need to be able to be allies and supportive, but we also need to be able to think about and be attentional about inclusiveness. And I feel like in those type of environments, we're still not even close to being anywhere near supportive for for alcoholics or people in recovery from that.
1: I would say two things. Challenge the conference uh, leaders that you're going to and saying, hey, are you going to have, you know, and a slip line, I think that's, it's called a slip. It's an, it's a non-alcoholic uh, drinks, they're herbs and okay. we'll have to look at, we'll have to get that. I would challenge the conference leaders to do that. Are you going to argue, are you, you going to serve that? And if you're with somebody and they say, oh, I'm not going to drink, you go awesome. And then you switch the subject. Yeah, that's it. It's that simple.
2: Those are yeah. good
1: points. Yeah. Go ahead, Ariel.
2: No, I'm just saying those are wonderful. I think um, you have to speak up uh, that these systems are not going to change because uh, they're they want to, you know, they're just going to go with what has worked for them years and years. So if no mm-hmm. one steps up and gives them education and clarity on the subject, then what's good? How is it going to change?
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think we need to make choice the norm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, if you think about it, you know, somebody that chooses not to drink, it doesn't mean they're in recovery. It doesn't mean they're an alcoholic. It just means that they have chosen to not drink. And so when somebody says, no, I'm okay, I don't drink, you know, your reaction isn't like, what? You
2: yeah, know?
0: yeah. And I mean, you gotta control your 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 reactions to it as well and I think that takes all of yeah. us doing the work
2: yeah no that's so
0: crazy. true Angie I know you're oh I know
2: I mean, like,
1: <laughs> your wheels are just going Right, because I was that person. Like, what? I mean, because you know, in Mike McGuire, my interview with him, um, he said it best. He goes, "I come from a long line of drinkers, right?" And and you look at my family background, and they are—I'm talking German, Irish, you know, British. I mean, heavy, heavy. You know, that's that you sat down and you had a couple beers and wine and who knows what. But I uh, no longer ask anybody what's in their drink because it's none of my business Mm -hmm. (laughs) it really isn't um and I quickly move on because I'm I'm I focus my interest on on getting to know that person of who they are and this goes back to the box right Mm -hmm. we can't keep putting people in boxes of hey you're at an industry event you're gonna drink yeah you Mm
2: -hmm. know so we got a lot
1: of work to do (laughs)
2: Definitely. And that's, like, beautiful, though, like, that we can all agree that, like, we, like, like, like again, I just keep bringing up accountability, but it's like, once we all realize that we have a part in this, um, and that we can change it, and we stop putting blame on people, and we, like, it's beautiful. So we can Mm -hmm. stop separating. I think that separates us from each other, too, to be like, what? You're not drinking? Mm -hmm. But it's like, What if a moment where like, okay, say I was the person that said, like reacted in that way and was like, you're not drinking, but what if it it happened to me in a different kind of way? Oh, you're not going to go on the boat, (laughs) like whatever it is. It's still putting me in an emotional state that makes me Mm -hmm. feel like I'm questioning my own worth again. So it's like, it can happen. We just have to normalize that just because addiction is something that is, it's a huge how do I word this? Addiction is such a huge taboo,
0: you know, it really but is.
2: That we find a, a relation within ourselves to it so that we can then start to have perspective on it with somebody like say you don't ever deal with addiction in your life. Well, you don't think you do, you know, so, so that yeah. have you have perspective to then help that person not feel separate from us, mm-hmm. from the group, from the norm.
1: I want to call it two things because this is, um, the, the, the physicality of what you did when you said what you're not drinking, like you stepped back. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you used the word separate. It separates us, right? FIFA has, uh, or Lumineers Lumineers has a commercial on FIFA right now. And it's, if, if you listen to Lumineers and if you're in recovery, you're going to realize they're in recovery. <laughs> You know, w- wherever they are or not, right? And it's one of the Lumineers' song, and it's about you know addiction. It's about the it's is connection starts the healing process. Mm-hmm. So you're you're leaning away and you're saying separate. That's exactly right because we have to connect to each other to give that ability for that addiction to heal. And 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 the funny part is the connection is different than the expectation. And some parents think I'm providing support. I'm, I'm I'm connecting with my kid on, let's just say sports. But if you don't know, or if you're not honoring that that child doesn't want to do sports, you're not connecting, Right. you know? So connecting, meeting that person where they are in that moment. And that's that inclusion that you were talking about, Sarah. You
0: know, well, and let's talk about leaning in because I think you're also talking about that too, right? Not leaning backwards, but leaning in. Yes. And I always wonder, you know, what if you're a family member, or what if you're somebody at work that works really closely with somebody, and you start wondering if they are potentially addicted
2: Mm. to
0: pills, to alcohol, to 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 drugs to maybe they have an eating disorder, you know, what is your advice to people in that particular position that have, that paved the way with good intentions, right? Because the good intention is there. Whether their actions or not happen to translate into good intentions, because most people don't know how to deal with it. What is it when they're in a position like that? What the, should they be doing? Is there a question that they should be asking themselves? Is there a question that they should be asking the other person? Is there something that they should be doing to help support somebody in that position that may not even know it themselves, or maybe in denial? Um, but it because that's a really you know that's a sliding slope, right? That could start they could start sliding pretty quickly
2: think for me, if I was to notice that with somebody, I would try to come from a place of clarity and really set my intentions with that person. Like, hi, I'm here to say, like, I realize I've seen some things that have alarmed me or not even bringing up alarm, but like I'm coming here with love and compassion and understanding, like really just setting a foundation before the conversation starts that that person has space. And just in case you did observe wrongly, you know, or Mm -hmm. if they do have that addiction, they don't feel, they don't feel shame because you've opened the space with love and clarity. Mm. To me, that would be important. I know that could be hard because, you know, like, how do we even know what that means within ourselves? Um, And that's, to me, all I can say is to speak from the heart and not the ego. Like, don't have it, like, don't have an agenda with it. Don't try to be a hero. Just Mm -hmm. come as a friend.
1: I like that. Well,
0: and I think also a lot of people would just not bother. None of my business none Mm -hmm. of my business. I'm not getting involved. That's none of my business. Is that the right attitude, Angie?
1: No, it's not. And I, I'll piggyback. I think a good thing to say is, you know, I could be wrong, but I see some things are, are, are challenging. I'm here. I may not understand anything, but I'm here to listen, you know, and and just understand that it that to your point the stage that the person's in mm-hmm. will navigate the response the denial it, it always comes first always comes first and you might have to just reassure that person that you're there N- not over and over but at a consistent level because mm-hmm. they they might choose when they can come back to you right Mm -hmm. And um, if you keep that safe space, and and we call it containing, you're Mm -hmm. a container for them. In other words, they're giving you this energy. They're giving you this challenge. They're giving you where they're at. And all you're doing is containing it. You're not giving them anything of what they should do. Never give advice. Never. Just only say, hey, here's some professional resources or here's some free resources right you never give your opinion
0: and going going to HR I'm sure is probably
1: the wrong thing to do I you know I just struck I think the HR community is so be, way behind of what is necessary for this I I think that their focus honestly becomes so administrative. I mean, they're doing great. Companies are doing great, great things in the back end mm-hmm. on uncovering cover, in benefits, addiction um, benefits, and resources, and and they're they're making incredible leaps and bounds that way, right? So I'm not criticizing HR, but instead I'm saying that they they might not be equipped. Let's mm-hmm. use the Jennifer Aniston term. They might not be equipped for what's going on with that one employee. And
0: is that yeah. the fault of the company? Should the company be doing more from a training
1: perspective? I think it's the industry. The human resource industry has to figure this one out because there's so many legalities of how, how deeply do you get involved mm-hmm. in an employee's personal life? Mm-hmm it's you know they have a lot on their plate the hr team i'm not making excuses for them but what what does each state or each federal law say that you can talk about Mm -hmm. that's yeah i don't know
2: i think like you said earlier like outsourcing you know like i don't know what i just having resources from every yeah Uh, perspective I think that is a step that they need to educate themselves in so that they can take away from like because liability comes too when you're dealing with things that you don't know so um like yeah like you said earlier outsourcing to professionals Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Ariel you
0: talked a lot uh, you talked earlier about having loss from addiction
2: yeah uh, what's the impact
0: and the road to recovery from something like that and how can people support somebody who's been through, through that, because there is, you know, when you think about addiction, there's a lot of, there's a lot of loss with addiction in a variety of different ways.
2: I think forgiveness. I had to learn to forgive my father. I had to learn to forgive my friends and then I had to forgive myself so I Mm -hmm. think it was having that conversation with myself and getting it out of my head and onto paper or even speaking it out and being like this stuff happened and it wasn't at fault of anyone and I like taking control back in it and I think forgiveness like I don't know any other way to explain it other than starting a conversation to help forgive myself and the people around me and healing that wound in that way, um, opened me up to empowering my father. I no longer saw him as a figure of addiction. I saw him as a human being struggling and I mm. felt loved for him in that way. And, um, I don't know what everyone believes, but you know, I, 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 feel him all the time and I still have that relationship and I don't close that door. It's, it's open. Mm.
0: And if I were to ask you about it, would you be open to receiving that and to talking about it? And in the moment of loss, is there anything that somebody can sort of say or do in that moment to, you know, help at all? I know that in some conversations around loss, you know, just asking Asking about your stories about them, like maybe some fun stories that you and just giving you space to be able to talk about them in a good light. Um, Because that's that's the other part, I think, of awkwardness around grief and loss. And how do you support somebody in that? And like I said, with addiction, there is a lot of loss. And I think people do have good intentions and want to support. And I think it's important for us to talk about what that can look like and what you can ask and what you can say.
2: I think action was the strongest thing by just being there. Mm. Um, It wasn't what the people needed to say. It was what they needed to do for me. And I I needed them to be friends and family and supportive and loved. And I needed them to make sure that that relationship was stable and there. And they were just open to having me, all parts of me. Um, If Mm. I cried, there was space. Um, I don't think words were really impactful for me in that moment I just I wanted the hug I wanted the the community I wanted the conversation um talking about great moments with them I think that was the major healing component to like help me get through was just having people to talk to
0: and let you be yourself this is honestly every time I do this podcast it's like such um it just comes up all the time is that people just want to be accepted for who they are, flaws and all, you know, if I'm crying one moment and I'm laughing another, like, just accept me for who I am. And I know, you know, Angie, um, and I'm so glad that your story is so positive because I know it's been such a struggle for you and your family and everything like that. You know, what is it as, you know, from a parent perspective and I know you said you have a couple of friends that you can call and you know just talk to. But what about your supportive community? What do you need from them? What can they sort of say to you? What are what are some of the things that people because I'm sure parent groups can be very judgmental. I mean, I'm just saying. They're,
1: they're not though when you get into them, um actually they're not. It's funny that's I'm glad you said that because then I can I can describe Um, a parent group, there's so much vulnerability because you're coming to the group with, you know, a sense of failure. Mm. Where did we go wrong? What did we do wrong? You know, and and so many times you'll hear parents say, I've really screwed up. I went on Facebook and it's, it's, it's graduation season. And I saw all these pictures of all, you know, my kid's not there. My kid's not." doing this that or the other thing so the parent groups become an incredibly vulnerable space Hmm. and it's so uh it's a gift to go to them because the outside world when you're walking around is not a safe space
0: so that's what I meant sorry by the parent groups is that the parents from like school or whatever are very judgmental and so you know how do you sort of navigate that and what would you need from people that kind of know the situation
1: yeah it's funny you have to build your own community and the way you the way I build my own community is I use that word recovery Mm. I use it a lot and then you normalize it I do and and as I normalize it you know certain ears will prick up and somebody'll say I know I know what you're doing I know what you're going through hey hi how are you it's almost like a secret handshake but wow and the, yeah it's but it's an, it, it leads to very real conversations and it leads to an incredible softness at least I've experienced it it's like a grace uh that is being bestowed on that moment And I I have told my son over and over and over again, I am so thankful and grateful that we have gone through this Mm -hmm. because my relationships have gone from, you know, challenging to beautiful. And Sarah, you saw me. I have to acknowledge this, that you were there for me so much, so many times because I could share with you and the group, you know the horrific challenge of of it you know it was it was hard it was really hard and -hmm. you guys gave me that space right but yeah we we just have to um to your point normalize it and just call out where we are this is where we're standing right now Mm -hmm. and it's it's um yeah and what I about, what is. about boundaries?
0: Like you and I did not grow up learning boundaries. I don't, <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I'm pretty sure you, that's... it's our generation that did not
1: get access to the word boundary. <laughs> that's another podcast. I can't go there. Cause that's like another freaking two hours, man. <laughs> and I mad. only
0: bring it up because like I've struggled and I'm only starting to learn boundaries and let me tell you people, like the advice I can give to anybody listening to this right now, Ugh. if you don't understand boundaries, go and do something about it now, but start early.
1: <laughs> yeah. Go to the 12-step program right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> start boundaries early because they will help you so much in every sort of situation, right? Oh, yeah. And I think when it comes to addiction, um, that's a really hard part as well, is that you kind of lose those boundaries. You use your You lose your sense of boundary. Mm. Yeah, right,
2: Ariel? Um, I think when you start learning how what your boundaries are and how far you can be pushed, I think that reflects to other people how they can use their own boundaries. I yeah. think lack of boundaries is because we don't have boundaries within ourselves, and we don't know what those really mean to us yet. So when mm-hmm. we investigate that, we, we mirror to other people like, oh, I too can have that boundary mm-hmm. and say no, because this person did it. They're in their power. They feel good about it. And I think it, it opens up the door to like perspective on how, cause I feel like kind of, maybe you're talking more about, um, when you say something and someone might take it a little more offensively, is that kind of mm-hmm. what you're talking about with the boundary in the beginning?
0: Yeah. And I'm also talking about like, <laughs> like, you know, if I have a boundary where I'm an alcoholic and I don't want to go to that particular industry event because it's going to trigger me, that's a boundary that I need to be respected. And one of the things that I thought was interesting or, or worthwhile pointing out is that if somebody has a boundary and they communicate that to you, it's very difficult for somebody to communicate that that to you as a as a person, let alone somebody coming from addiction or in recovery, it's probably two or three times more harder for that boundary to be communicated. And so the respect needs to be there when somebody is communicating a boundary. And I think that's really important to note um, life in general, but for this particular episode as well. And if you are triggered by that boundary from somebody saying no or saying, I don't want to do this or whatever, that's not their problem. You need sure. to look into yourself as to why you're being triggered for yeah. that particular boundary. And so it was just like an important thing that I just wanted to, and I I, I haven't uh, dealt with addiction or recovery or, or anything like that. So I didn't understand the correlation between boundaries, but I just sort of assumed that boundaries are two to three times harder in recovery or yeah. for addicts.
2: Boundaries are probably like the hardest lesson anyone can learn mm-hmm. because we're, yeah. we're hard we're trying to come back to ourselves and it's like, I don't know. Is this my boundary? Is this, right. is this making me feel worse? Or is this like somebody else's idea of what I need to do? So it's so up in the air and like to try to figure it out. And, and I always go back to the body. How does it feel on the body? Hmm. So are you feeling tense and strict or does this decision make you feel free and happy? Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said, the trigger thing is 100%. That's like where we, that is our map into where we need to heal. When mm-hmm. you are triggered, you're like, oh, oh, okay. Thanks for that clue.
1: That is exactly <laughs> right.
2: Finally move a little forward because obviously this is something I need to work on.
1: That is exactly right. Brad Reedy with Evoke Therapy. And that is another free, this is a, a fabulous treatment center out in Utah. And they have worked with so many people. He has a free podcast, and if anybody out there is struggling with how to handle a family member, listen to Evoke Therapy, Brad Brady. And one of the things he posted on his social media the other day was, "If you're triggered, that's the you got to work harder on that area." So it's exactly what you just said, Ariel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So are there any
0: um, are there any resources that you guys can share for the audience to maybe look into? I know, Andrew, you've mentioned a few um, throughout the show, Um, but maybe if there's any more that people could potentially look at or research or go online.
2: I I feel like Angie here probably has a way better (laughs) 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 website. there's
1: There's like a bunch of tabs. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well,
2: what's
0: the
1: website?
2: What's the
1: website? Siblinghoodofrecovery.com. dot com, and I even have research articles there. And every single interview that I have with a treatment pro- professional, they give me a list of resources. I post them in the podcast, and uh, it's a great way to get started in learning and and, and learning about free resources to begin with. But right. you know, Sarah, I want to dig into. I love what you asked about if somebody's at a work environment, you know, what do they need to do and I'll um uh, look into that a little bit more and see if I can provide resources for that area. Amazing. Thank
0: you, that. Thank you. Well, I think um it's time to bring this conversation to a close and um it just like I get goosebumps on every single episode of blended because you know, I am just so honored and humbled that you know, people like you will come on and share so authentically and vulnerably. So what's one thing that you would like to leave the audience with? Maybe thinking about, putting into action, um, anything really that you can think of from this conversation that you'd like them to take away with them. Ariel, I'm going to start with you.
2: Um, To always remember that you aren't better than somebody else that you need to meet people like where they are, meet people from where you would want to be met at um, and be really open-minded and compassionate for other people. I think we can, like when it comes to addiction, we can put ourselves on a pedestal, kind of like, oh, we don't do that or we don't do, and there's like that stigma that comes around addiction. And I think once we take ourselves off that pedestal and realize that those people are not different than us. um, And that we can help and support them. And they have a place in this world and Mm -hmm. unique gifts that they have to share. So just be compassionate.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it can happen to anybody. And I'm going to reiterate what I said earlier, you are not the value of the worst thing that you have ever done in your life. And if that's true of yourself, you've got to be able to make that true for other people too.
1: Angie, last words. Give people grace, especially yourself. I love
0: that. And so what is your definition of grace?
1: I think um, a lot of what Ariel just said, meet them where they're at and understand that, um, you know, maybe some of us are still getting to know ourselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of us are still on a journey to understanding where we are, really, And that's where the grace comes in. You know, we might think we know everything or we're making these quick judgments because that's how our brains are wired. Our brains are wired to do that. And we've got to retrain ourselves to just slow down, you know, and take it in.
0: Absolutely. Well, that was tough and i got a bit emotional um i think you both got a little bit emotional talking about some of some of those topics today and i just want to say a huge thank you for sharing so openly and honestly i mean it's hard right the impact on both The addict's life and those around them is huge and it can be a real battle and unfortunately sometimes impossible to change around. But I genuinely think that conversations like this are so important and they are a positive step in the right direction. Just look at what's happened with mental health. Although we have a way to go, the dialogue around it is much more in the open and better understood than it was before. And that means people are more likely to speak out and as a result of that access, community and support. And that's what we need here to stop demonizing addicts, to understand the factors that go into making those choices, to bring conversations out in the open and share our support with open hearts. So remember that you can reach out to me or any of our guests on social media if you have anything you'd like to add to what we've talked about today. Remember to join us again next time for episode 28 of Blended, and we'll be diving into parenthood. You're not going to want to miss that one. I mean, talk about boundaries. We're going to be talking all about (laughs) boundaries on that one. So anyways, a huge thank you to Ariel and Anne. Angie, thank you again for having the courage and the bravery for coming on Blended today. Thank you,
2: Sarah. Thank you so much for having